0: Hi, it's Meredith. You know, we love creating these podcasts and we hope that they are a really helpful piece of equipping you to feel like you're following Jesus in your regular life. But one of the things that is hard about this is that the sermon is such a small slice of our community life. When we are together as a group, even on Zoom, there's a whole dynamic that comes from what we're all bringing as we create church together that is so hard to capture in just this little slice. So before I dive into the message today, I did just want to share a bit of what that felt like for this past week. When we were together live, somebody in the group shared a story of celebrating their partner's 60th birthday with a party with longtime friends. And they talked about the meal they shared and the way they gathered around the table. But most of all, how, when that party was coming to an end, they noticed all the guests began to help cleaning up. And they were thinking, I'm hosting you and you don't need to do this. But people just kept saying, oh, no, we don't mind. Oh, no, we don't mind. And they pitched in. And ultimately, one of the friends had a big old stack of dirty linens that were ready to get washed up. And the host is saying, oh, it's fine. You don't need to do that. But she says, oh, that's okay. I know where your washer is. And that was the heart of it. That there are these times that you realize that being together, meal after meal and event after event, it's formed you. And after somebody shared that story, we opened it up to the rest of the group. Memorable meals, memorable gatherings, and what was it? And there were some hard stories and some heavy stories and some hilarious stories. But that was our heart as we opened up our time. After we talked about these various meals and gatherings, that's when we celebrated communion, which we do every week. We listened to Blessed Assurance, and then we dove back into Matthew. We've been calling this series What Matthew Saw, talking about the ways that Matthew's biography helps us understand Jesus' life and mission. We are in Matthew chapter 14 today, if you are someone who likes to read along. Chapter 14 looks at a contrasting pair of meals placed back to back in Matthew's account. For Matthew, you may remember one major message he wants conveyed is that Jesus is king over God's kingdom here among us on earth. But these two meals frame in stark contrast what kind of a king. And so there is this peek at the kind of king that Herod, and by extension Caesar, the kind of kings they are. They have power. What do they do with it? And then there's a look at the kind of king Jesus is. He has power. In fact, more than Rome. What does he do with it? And more than that, what messages do these meals send to those who live in the kingdoms? Because meals are more than events, things that happen on our calendar. Meals are formational. They have the power to shape us, to shape kingdoms. Matthew saw that one of these meals represents a good king, faithfully using their power to create an abundant kingdom. And the other does not. We're actually going to start with the latter. So this is Matthew 14 starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the ruler heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his servants, "This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him." This is a clue that Jesus was not well known to the Romans at this point. Thinking it's John resurrected is a sign that perhaps Herod didn't really know Jesus was an option. Continuing on, Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. John has likely made this attack on Herod because it's necessary for John's own message. John is announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, saying that the king is on their way. And because people expected God's kingdom to manifest itself amidst the socio-political realities of the day, he needs to be real clear that, Hey, this Herod guy ain't it. Just look at how he stole his brother's wife. That's not who you're looking for, everybody. So John has attacked Herod, who's incredibly angry about this. Now verse five. Though Herod wanted to put John to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and she pleased Herod so much he promised on oath to grant her whatever she would ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. The king was grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. The head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took the body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Some other important things to know about this banquet, so you can have a picture in your mind. This is not some generic birthday party which having your niece-slash-stepdaughter, who is maybe 12, be the dancer, should highlight for us all. This is a thing for the Romans, drunken, gluttonous, excessive displays of wealth and power. And when we consider this girl, oppression. What kind of a king is Herod? The kind who clings to his own position and power, and who destroys, whether it's literally, in the case of John, or at a soul level, in the case of this girl who destroys anyone who stands against them. Now, right after this, Matthew cuts to Jesus, who has received this devastating news of John's death. He goes away on his own. Probably to think, process, grieve, cry. We'll pick up in Matthew 14, 13. When the crowds heard it, they followed Jesus on foot from the towns. When Jesus went ashore from his boat, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, the fact that the Gospels each have different large scale feedings told with slightly different details shows what I think is one of the delightful things about the Bible. These folks who wanted to help interpret what they experienced to show why this biography of this man Jesus deserves to be told each hone in on elements that help with their main message. And in that sense, then, it is all true. So here for Matthew, we have this contrast. Herod's excessive gluttonous banquet set up against Jesus's humble meal with the crowds. And both have power in common. Herod clinging to it, He needs it so badly, and he feels deeply insecure about losing it. So what does he do? He goes over the top. He uses wealth and power to force a show of excess. And poor John and this girl are the ones who suffer for it. Which is true, for that matter. Fairy tales always make sure that the wicked and powerful lose it all in the end to bring justice. But all too often in real life, they keep going. And it's others who suffer because of their power. Then we have Jesus, who has all power and is completely secure in it and in his own identity. So what does he do? He uses it in service, as a servant, feeding others. His true power is used to bring abundance. And that's really the point of power in this kingdom. If you have it, you should be faithful with it. Faithful to use it in such a way that it brings about more of the markers of the kingdom for those around you. Matthew was always circling around the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is like a meal that began with a small, normal offering. But it was offered to the king. And the king who has all power blessed it and offered it right back but transformed so that all were cared for and there was more than enough. The kingdom is a place where the king uses his power to stay faithful to the mission of bringing goodness, life, life. Abundance, joy, and justice everywhere. Over and over, the experience of a meal shapes people. And it shapes the story. This is one instance of it, but it is not the only one. Ours is a table-centered story. At Passover, we are the freed. Unleavened bread and lamb form theological truths like God as liberator. Over dishes of manna and quail, we are the cared for, and God is the provider who will meet all our needs. At festival banquets, we are the just and the generous, canceling debts and freeing servants. We even feast as a sign that we can trust that God will take care of us, even if that repayment never comes in full. Over wedding wine, we are the joyful, and God is the God of abundance. At the Last Supper, we are the friends of the Messiah and family to one another, over and over again until Jesus comes back. Over grilled fish on a beach, we are the restored, forgiven for our betrayals, invited to carry on. Over meals, we become who we are. Matthew saw this. Herod, banquet after banquet, being and becoming even more of an insecure, power-hoarding oppressor who eliminates would-be opponents violently. Jesus, so secure in his power and full of compassion, he can bring bread and fish for all and he just can't stop himself until everyone is filled full. Over bread and fish on a hillside, we are the subjects of a good king living in a kingdom where compassion leads the way and where the powerful Will use it for our flourishing. Now, Jesus, of course, also taught, but he was keenly aware that experiences mattered. You can talk about the kingdom, but experiences help us understand a king who will radically be in contrast to the Herods of the world. So that we can't be in this kingdom without a serious shift in how we think about power and having enough oppression of others. Compassion and action. I think that we have overemphasized at times that we become most like Jesus through the things that we study our eyes on the pages of the Bible, our ears listening to pastors. But God's people also often become who they were made to be through the meals they ate our noses smelling sauces that are simmering, our mouths tasting good things, our stomachs filled full, our shoulders brushing our neighbors our hands full of dirty linens at the end, but we know where the washer is. Meals can make us kingdom people. Because we will get up from that meal and go back to the other parts of our lives. And because we sat at that table eating multiplied bread and fish, we will begin to see bread and fish everywhere. Regular things like the time we have to listen or a porch dropped, goodie, real mail, Something we can do to help. A little extra money that could be shared. A prayer that can be offered with a text to follow up and say you did. All these regular things could be transformed into a feast for someone else. And then we also don't feel afraid of sharing it. That we will lose if we give it away. Because we've experienced abundance to overcome our scarcity. We are not, most of all, people who share a common set of beliefs. Many of us share many beliefs, true, but it's the experience of sitting at the table that lets us hold different ones because the table's where we can talk about it. The table is where we tell our story and grow empathy for why we hold different beliefs from one another. We are not most of all people who share a set of beliefs. We are people who sit at a common table. We are people who sit at a common table and tell a common story of a compassionate, powerful, abundance-creating king. And because we're at that table, we're living in the kingdom. Now, when we were together live as a group, at this point, we went through a time of embodied prayer, which is just when you use your body to help show what you want to say to God. You can also be thinking in your mind and praying with words as well, but you don't have to. Here are the three movements of the prayer. First, we opened our hands. And we thought about what regular things we have that are in those hands. What are bread and fish for us? Then we moved our hands forward and out away from us. Like we were offering what was in them. And that was true whether we had thought of something we had to offer or whether it was simply ourselves. We moved our hands forward. And here's the prayer now. God, what would you like to do with this? And then finally, we put our hands over our heart. And we asked God to remind us that we are enough. That our regular selves and the regular things we have, our bread and fish, are enough. Because God can make them enough. And so we prayed things like, remind me that you will take care of me. Help me know that I am enough as I am. Remind me that I can trust you and you will make what I have enough. Jesus, who multiplied loaves and fish, make us who you want us to be. Take our bread and fish and do what you will with them. And as we sit at tables together, whether they are physical in the future or virtual for now, make us a family members of your kingdom where you are the good and abundant king. We pray in your own name. Amen.